Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Where does human agency end and the miraculous begin? In this series, based on Hadar's Hanukkah companion from 5782, titled, I Know Nothing But Miracles, different teachers explore the evolving relationship between humanity and miracles from different angles. This one features Hadar Advanced Kolel member Yael Jaffe. Let's listen. Today we're going to be looking at two stories about the family of Hanina ben Dosa, who is a scholar in the Talmud Bavli and whose life is part of a trope of, you know, piety and poverty coming together, but also is unique in that he and his family regularly encounter experience miracles in their daily lives. And that speaks to the theme of this series and this packet of Hanukkah Torah from Hadar of what are miracles um, and how do we relate to them in text and in our own lives? And we're going to dive right in. So the first story that we're looking at is from Talmud Bavli, Masechet Tani. Amar of Yehuda, Amar Rav. So Rav Yehuda said that Rav said, B'chol yom v'yom bat kol yotzet v'omeret, kol ha'olam kulo nizon bishvil chanina bani. He said, every day a heavenly voice goes out and says, the entire world is sustained by chanina ben dosa, my son. Um, and the word nizon here is literally connected to the word for food or sustenance that like he sustains the world. He's so righteous that the whole world has him to thank for, for sustenance. The chanina bani dayo bekav charuvi me'erev shabbat le'erev shabbat. But in contrast, chanina, my son, relies on a kav, a very small unit of measurement of caribs to last him from week to week, from Arab Shabbat to the next Shabbat. So, which is to say, his family is very, very poor. So this contrast that we hear a lot in rabbinic stories of him being extremely pious, but extremely poor. So that's our setup of this character. And now we're going to shift instead of just from Hanina to also his family, specifically his wife first. And later we're going to see a story about his daughter. So Hava Ragila Devetu so we get this story demonstrating their poverty that his wife would heat the oven up every Shabbat and to send up smoke because she was so embarrassed, meaning she was embarrassed that people might think that they didn't have enough food or know that they didn't have enough food for Shabbat. And so she would put on this show of baking every Shabbat, sending smoke and steam out of their kitchen um, to look as if they had enough. Havala hachshivavta ishta. She had one horrible, evil neighbor, Amara, who said to herself, I know that they don't have any food. So what's with all this smoke coming out of their chimney? Asla Utrafa Ababa. She went and knocked on their door to like investigate the situation. So Hanina Bendosa's wife, not the neighbor, but our main character, gets embarrassed and runs upstairs, runs to a back room. She wants to avoid this nosy neighbor. She doesn't want to have this confrontation. She doesn't want to be caught in this act of, you know, trying to deceive people into thinking that they're wealthier than they are. It avid la nisa, but a miracle happened for her. That suddenly the neighbor saw the oven was full of bread. And that the kneading basin was full of dough. Amarala, so the, na- the neighbor shouted up to the wife who's now gone missing, Planita, Planita, Aite Masa, She's like, hey, you, bring down a shovel because your bread's starting to burn. And actually she responds, Amarala, uh, yeah, that's why I went upstairs. Which seems like she's trying again to save face. 
But then our story concludes with one breita, an addition, and kind of addendum. Tana, actually, she wasn't lying in that moment. She actually had gone upstairs to get that shovel. Because she was so accustomed to miracles happening around. She anticipated this happening. So it seems from that that the intended takeaway here is that Hanina Bendosa was so great and his family was so renowned that not only is the whole world sustained on his behalf, but he and his family are regular recipients of miracles. God intervenes in their life in these nature-bending ways all the time, such that they're just, they come to be used to them. But also, obviously, that addendum for the story doesn't need to be part of the original story, and there's still something really compelling about the way that God just intervened in this moment to help her save face. So again, we're just going to keep moving through, but I'm just going to name some questions that came up from this story, For at least for me. Um, the packet that you've all been linked to also raises a bunch of questions written by Avi Straussberg, um, and some of these overlap with those, or some of them are ones I just want us to think about. So first of all, the main question I think that comes out of here is, so they're too poor to afford to bake bread for Shabbat. And on the other hand, they're regular recipients of miracles. So why does God intervene in this kind of local acute problem solving way rather than providing more consistent and steady assistance for someone so righteous? So that's kind of a question that comes up for me. Another is, is a miracle really necessary for this story to have a happy ending? Let's think about the role of the neighbor. What could they have done differently? What could she have done differently? Other things that feel really urgent are what's the role of embarrassment in this story and the role of gender and economic class, right? The narrative seems to associate poverty with shame and centers how that plays out between women kind of watching one another. And it could be read as being critical of that association and that dynamic, or it might just be endorsing it. And I think that might also inform how we think about is God intervening because of the embarrassment that Hanina's wife is experiencing or because of the neighbor's judgmentality or for some other kind of objective reason. Um, and lastly, there's this bright at the end that we have to question because it seems like this kind of afterthought to the story that seems to try and insist that Hanina's wife would never have been that distressed. She all along had such faith in God that God was going to provide and that everything was going to be fine in terms of her status and her embarrassment. But what does it mean to be accustomed to miracles in that way, especially since elsewhere in Tani, which you'll see in this Hanukkah packet and in this series of lunchtime learning, that we learn that a person should never rely on miracles. So you shouldn't put yourself in risky situations and say, God will provide, um, that you have to do your own hishtadlut. You have to make your own efforts and put forth your own energy to try and ensure your well-being and your safety. So how does that intersect with living a life where you just feel like entitled to or accustomed to miracles? And what does that mean? And I think a good question to leave us all with and that I'm happy to hear comments and reactions in the chat from is, do you find the story more compelling with that addendum or not? Is it more relatable or interesting to think about God as intervening in a way that's unexpected and a relief or in a way that's like part of a kind of cyclical um, mundane lifestyle that these people are leading where they just feel like God is always around and actively involved in their lives? So the second story, again, about Hanina Bendoza's family and again, centering one of the female members of his family, this time his daughter. This one does not play out as explicitly their poverty, but I think there is a potential overread that we're going to do to maybe also highlight that point. But it definitely centers their relationship with miracles and that sense of normality to miracles in their lives. One Shabbat evening, Hanina Bendosa saw that his daughter was sad. Amarla, bitia mayatzivat. He says, my daughter, why are you so sad? She said, 
I accidentally switched a vessel full of vinegar for a normal vessel full of oil. And I lit our Shabbos candles with that, our Shabbos lamp. And now I know, she's saying, that the light isn't going to last through the night. We're going to end up sitting in the dark. And it seems that she's both concerned logistically and also feels a bit embarrassed that she did that. Um, I think one potential ovary that I want to offer is maybe it wasn't just an accident, but also they ran out of oil is potentially what's happening there, which is part of that poverty that oil is obviously a more expensive, um, hard to find resource than vinegar. Um, And that also might be what's behind this. But it's not in the shot of the text. The shot of the text seems that she made a that she made a mistake, and she just feels embarrassed and also worried. We know from elsewhere that part of the origin of of, of Shabbat candles, not Hanukkah candles, of Shabbat candles, is just to have some light in your house over Shabbat when you can't be lighting candles actually over the course of the day, and that is described as being shalom bayit, of having like peace in your home and having just accessibility for people in the house and being able to conduct yourselves nicely and reasonably. Um, and so it feels like that's that kind of increases the stakes to know that Shabbat candles are all about blasting through the night and giving you light in the dark um, and not just like a ritual welcoming in Shabbat. And so she's worried about those logistics and also feels embarrassed about messing that up. So how does Hanina respond to his daughter's concern? Amarla, PT, my ichpat lacha, why do you care? Or ichpat lacha, what's, what's the big deal? He who told oil to burn, he'll also tell vinegar to burn. Meaning God, who's capable of making oil burn, can also make vinegar burn. So he's not only just saying God will provide some kind of miracle, but saying that like the fact that oil burns is already enough of an intervention on God's part. That like, why couldn't God also do that with vinegar? Tana, so again, we get a bright addendum to the end. The candle went and burned all through Shabbat up until the point that they could use it to do Havdalah at the end of Shabbat. It lasted the full 25 hours that Shabbat was. So again, it seems that one of the main takeaways here is that Hanina Benoz's family are such regular recipients of miracles that he totally expects one to just come and save the day. And questions about that of like, what would it be like to have that kind of faith? Is that relatable at all? But also what I want to point out is that the story centers the emotional experience again um, around these these factors coming into play. First, his wife, now his daughter. But the last story's addendum really informs how we read those alongside one another. Because with that bright at the end of the first story, telling us that Hanina Bendosa's wife knew all along that a miracle was going to happen, and she had gone upstairs to just get a shovel to start digging all that bread out of her oven that hadn't been there a minute earlier. With that, we see Hanina and his wife sharing that extreme faith and that assumption and expectation of God's intervention in their lives. But without that addendum, Hanina's wife and daughter actually share more in terms of their emotional experience because both of them face this kind of worry and fear in the face of material reality and also embarrassment about their own role in that and the visibility of that by others. And so it just, I find it really interesting how adding that addendum brings Hanina and his wife closer, but removing it brings his wife and his daughter closer in their experience and makes them more paralleled. Another thing that I think this kind of urges us to think about is what is the nature of miracles, which is the whole theme that we're going with here for this series, um, specifically in the context of Hanina Bendoza's family, which feel very different than, say, the splitting of the sea, right? God is intervening in extremely intimate, small ways um, to provide for people who need it and who feel kind of desperate. And it could be that that's a bit more relatable. But one thing that I'm taking away from both of these is that the picture painted here 
is that God intervenes not just to not to ensure wealth or economic stability on a larger scale, but to protect Nina's family specifically from emotional distress. It happens to be that these interventions both time involve providing material goods or a shift in like the natural order, but both times it is construed and framed as a means to emotional safety and security. Right. So thinking about first the embarrassment and the shame dynamics of like class and gender in that first story and the way that God intervenes there to save Hanina's wife from that embarrassment. And then secondly, the embarrassment and maybe even the Shalom Bayit concern of the Shabbat candles not lasting all the way through Shabbat and Hanina's daughter feeling guilty about that. Um, And both those times, that's the urgent cry for God to intervene is the distress of these people. And I think that can offer us a kind of compelling image of what miracles might look like in our world and in our own lives so that we can identify the divine, not just in dramatic changes in our circumstances and material reality, but in the opportunities that we're given to feel protected and held in the face of distress or shame or discomfort. And my last thought about this is that it's especially often cases like these where the distress and the shame that both the characters that we've seen are experiencing is not just external. They're not just feeling that way because of the neighbor's judgment or because of the reality of sitting in the dark on Shabbat. For Hanina's wife and their daughter, it's really internal shame and guilt that's causing this distress and worry, right? So Hanina's wife first is embarrassed even before the neighbor gets introduced, right? Going back to how that story started, we know that every Shabbat she was doing this, it wasn't just because the neighbor came knocking that she started to pretend that they had more food than they did. She had a rhythm of her life that was based around this kind of embarrassment and shame where she would always be doing this every Shabbat, every Arab Shabbat. She would be putting on this show and had clearly internalized some like negative self-concept that she had to compensate for. And so too with Hanina's daughter, that she's feeling sad and guilty and ashamed about this basic mistake or running out of certain materials and is dwelling in that and feeling that sadness to the extent that her father sees it on her face. Um, And so in both of those cases, it seems that the emotional distress isn't just from their circumstances, but also from like an internal narrative and negative self-talk that they're engaging in. And I think that that is another frame that we can place on this idea of miracles as being about safety and protection from emotional distress is that when our experience is one of negative self-talk or self-esteem, it can feel like a massive gift and a massive intervention to have some relief from that, that kind of works from the outside in, that sometimes is about changing the external circumstances, but is more about giving us an opportunity to alleviate some of that distress um, and to feel protected and held in the face of it. So Molly says, it seems to emphasize the elements of life, that elements of life can still be miraculous, even if largely life is not going so great. Yeah, I think that is a huge takeaway, especially from this first story that really tries to bring together an image of living in systemic poverty, like in a consistent way, which again is like, you know, definitely more part of a trope than anything else of like rabbinic piety and poverty and asceticism um, and like not wanting for anything because of full faith in God. But using that as the backdrop for a life where miracles can still just happen on such a regular basis is actually really compelling because it doesn't mean that miracles have to be large scale, long lasting. They can be small and acute moments of provision and gratitude. Okay. And then in the first text, it's interesting that the miraculous intervention comes only when the shame becomes external, i.e. the neighbor shaming her, as opposed to the internal shame felt every week for the wife. I think that's a great point. Yeah. That why not just provide for her in those moments when she's just feeling that internal shame? Yeah. I think that's a moment where we might have to 
see the story isn't being as critical of that dynamic as we might be of the neighbor coming over and knocking on the door just to embarrass her. Like that seems to be the real moment that the story is critical of more so than the poverty itself being something that we want to be critical of or the self-shame, the association between poverty and shame that Janina Bendosa's wife is already experiencing, the story isn't as critical of. And it's more just when that becomes visualized by someone else or judged by someone else that that's where God feels the need to intervene in that story. Yeah. Karen says, I'm reading the faith and miracles, not as presumptuousness about them coming, but rather as wishful thinking, which doesn't have a certainty about the outcome, but by declaring it to be so, it becomes so, such as Nachshon walking into the sea, not knowing what will happen. Yeah. I think that that's really interesting, especially when we think about like manifesting. <laughs> this might be read like that, but in a slightly less kitschy way, I think of, of feeling that sense of um, not entitlement or presumptuousness, but of like openness to positive outcomes and of gratitude may be built also on prior experience, right? Like what they're able to do, it seems, is reflect on the past and what and the positives that have happened to them in the past and the ways that God has provided in the past and not let the overwhelming circumstances of the present overwhelm that data, right? It feels like what they're doing is being able to say, actually, I've been through this before and I'll be through, I'll go through it again. And I know that there have been positive outcomes and I don't know what that's going to look like in this given scenario. I don't know how God is going to make this last through all of Shabbat. I don't know how God is going to provide, but I know that some, that it'll all turn out okay um, based on my prior experience. It's an odd kind of stubbornness about positive outcomes, almost willing life to be good. Yes. I think some of the questions that Avi actually asked on that second story, bring that up in that she asks, how do you imagine Hanina Bendosa's daughter reacting to when he says this when he's like oh, don't worry about it god will provide like do you think she feels like comforted or do you think she kind of rolls her eyes and feels like that's not helpful i still feel really bad about messing this up for our family um and that that doesn't help me but again if her concern is mostly logistical then it could and she's part if she's part of like a family disposition of that kind of positive expectation, maybe that's a good reminder for her. Maybe that's actually part of their family's culture and lifestyle is that she just needs to be reminded of the regularity of miracles and God's intervention in their lives. And that's actually a really comforting thought for her. But yeah, Rav Avi raises that, I think, to that exact point, which is you could hear Hanina Mendoza as being a bit a bit stubborn or condescending about it and her saying like, no, dad, like something's actually wrong <laughs> and, and that's okay. And I need to be able to name that and be upset about it. But yeah, the the resolution at the end seems to imply that she's somewhat consoled, at least by the positive outcome, if not by her father's uh, anticipation of that positive outcome. Some questions that I think this could generate for the future are, again, what does it mean to expect miracles or rely on miracles in this way or feel that they're normal and to be expected in one's life? Does that kind of lower the stakes of it in that Maybe you're not as grateful if it feels just kind of quotidian and normal, and maybe it's, it doesn't feel as much of an intervention when the vinegar starts to burn. Or maybe that gives it all the more meaning to feel like God is eminently and eminently present in your life, um, and not just in dramatic, large-scale communal ways, but in intimate, personal, and emotional ways on a daily basis. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode with additional editing by David Chabinsky. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you. <laughs>